Book One, Chapters Three and Four of the Blue Lagoon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adrian Pretzelis. The Blue Lagoon by H. De Vere Stackpole. Chapter Three, The Shadow and the Fire. It was the fourth day of the long calm. An awning had been rigged up on the poop for the passengers, and under it sat Lestrange trying to read and the children trying to play. The heat and monotony had reduced even Dicky to just a surly mass, languid in movement as a grub. As for Emmeline, she seemed dazed. The rag-doll lay a yard away from her on the poop-deck, unnursed. Even the wretched box and its whereabouts she seemed to have quite forgotten. Daddy suddenly cried Dick, who had clambered up and was looking over the after-rail. What? Fish! Lestrange rose to his feet, came aft and looked over the rail. Down in the vague green of the water something moved, something pale and long. A ghastly form. It vanished, and yet another came, neared the surface, and displayed itself more fully. Lestrange saw its eyes. He saw the dark fin and the whole hideous length of the creature. A shudder ran through him as he clasped Dicky. "'Ain't he fine?' said the child. "'I guess, Daddy, I'd pull him aboard if I had a hook. Why haven't I a hook, Daddy? Why haven't I a hook, Daddy? Ow! You're squeezing me!' Something plucked at Lestrange's coat. It was Emmeline. She also wanted to look. He lifted her up in his arms. Her little pale face peeped over the rail. But there was nothing to see. The forms of terror had vanished, leaving the green depths untroubled and unstained. "'What's they called, Daddy?' persisted Dick, as his father took him down from the rail and led him back to the chair. "'Sharks,' said Lestrange, whose face was covered with perspiration. He picked up the book that he had been reading. It was a volume of Tennyson, and he sat down with it on his knees, staring at the white sunlit main-deck, barred with the white shadows of the standing rigging. The sea had disclosed to him a vision—poetry, philosophy, beauty, art, the love and joy of life. Was it possible that these should exist in the same world as those? He glanced at the book upon his knees, and contrasted the beautiful things in it which he remembered with the terrible things he had just seen—the things that were waiting for their food under the keel of the ship. It was just three bells—half-past three in the afternoon—and the ship's bell had just rung out. The stewardess appeared to take the children below, and as they vanished down the saloon companionway, Captain Lafarge came aft onto the poop and stood for a moment looking over the sea on the port side, where a bank of fog had suddenly appeared like a spectre of a country. "'The sun has dimmed a bit,' said he. "'I can almost look at it. Glass steady enough, there's a fog coming up. Ever seen a Pacific fog?' "'No, never.' "'Well, you won't want to see another,' replied the mariner, shading his eyes and fixing them upon the sea-line. The sea-line away to starboard had lost somewhat its distinctness. 
and over the day an almost imperceptible shade had crept. The captain suddenly turned from his contemplation of the sea and sky, raised his head and sniffed. "'Something is burning somewhere. Smell it? Seems to me like an old mat or summit. It's that swab of a steward, maybe. If he isn't breaking glass, he's upsetting lamps and burning holes in the carpet. Bless my soul! I'd sooner have a dozen Mary Anns and their dustpans round the place than one tomfool steward like Jenkins." He went to the saloon hatch. "'Below there!' "'Aye, sir. What are you burning?' "'I ain't burning nothing, sir.' "'I tell you I smell it. There's nothing burning here, sir.' "'Neither is there. It's all on deck.' Something in the galley, maybe. Rags, most likely, they've thrown on the fire." "'Captain,' said Lestrange. "'Aye, aye. Come here, please.' Lafarge climbed onto the poop. "'I don't know whether it's my weakness that's affecting my eyes, but there seems to me something strange about the mainmast.' The mainmast, near where it entered the deck, and for some distance up, seemed in motion a corkscrew movement most strange to watch from the shelter of the awning. This apparent movement was caused by a spiral haze of smoke, so vague that one could only tell of its existence from the mirage-like tremor of the mast round which it curled. "'My God!' cried Lafarge, as he sprang from the poop and rushed forward. Lestrange followed him slowly stopping every moment to clutch the bulwark rail and pant for breath. He heard the shrill bird-like notes of the boatswain's pipe. He saw the hands emerging from the forecastle like bees out of a hive. He watched them surrounding the main hatch. He watched the tarpaulin and locking bars removed. He saw the hatch opened and a burst of smoke—black, villainous smoke—ascend to the sky, solid as a plume in the windless air. Lestrange was a man of a highly nervous temperament, and it is just this sort of a man who keeps his head in an emergency, whilst your level-headed, phlegmatic individual loses his balance. His first thought was of the children, his second of the boats. In the battering off Cape Horn the Northumberland lost several of her boats. They were left the long-boat, a quarter-boat, and the dinghy. He heard Lafarge's voice ordering the hatch to be closed and the pumps manned so as to flood the hold, and knowing that he could do nothing on deck, he made swiftly as he could for the saloon companionway. Mrs. Stannard was just coming out of the children's cabin. "'Are the children lying down, Mrs. Stannard?' asked Lestrange, almost breathless from the excitement and exertion of the last few minutes. The woman glanced at him with frightened eyes. He looked like the very herald of disaster. "'For if they are, and you have undressed them, then you must put their clothes on again. The ship is on fire, Mrs. Stannard.' "'Good God, sir!' "'Listen,' said Lestrange. From a distance, thin and dreary as the crying of seagulls on a desolate beach, came the clanking of the pumps. End of chapter 3 Chapter 4 and like a dream dissolved. Before the woman had time to speak a thunderous step was heard on the companion stairs, and Lafarge broke into the saloon. 
The man's face was injected with blood, his eyes were fixed and glassy like the eyes of a drunkard, and the veins stood on his temples like twisted cords. "'Get those children ready!' he shouted, as he rushed into his own cabin. "'Get you all ready! Bolts are being swung out and victualled! Ho! Oh, where are those papers?' They heard him furiously searching and collecting things in his cabin—the ship's papers, accounts, things the master mariner clings to as he clings to his life, and as he searched and found and packed he kept bellowing orders for the children to be got on deck. Half mad he seemed, and half mad he was with the knowledge of the terrible thing that was stowed amidst the cargo. Up on deck the crew, under the direction of the first mate, were working in an orderly manner, and with a will, utterly unconscious of there being anything beneath their feet but an ordinary cargo on fire. The covers had been stripped from the boats, kegs of water and bags of biscuit placed in them. The dinghy, smallest of the boats and most easily got away, was hanging at the port quarter-boat davits, flush with the bulwarks, and Paddy Button was in the act of stowing a keg of water in her when Lafarge broke on to the deck, followed by the stewardess, carrying Emmeline, and Mr. Lestrange leading Dick. The dinghy was rather a larger boat than the ordinary ship's dinghy, and possessed a small mast and long sail. Two sailors stood ready to man the falls, and Paddy Button was just turning to trundle forward again when the captain seized him. "'Into the dinghy with you,' he cried, "'and roll those children and the passengers out a mile from the ship—two miles, three miles. Make an offing.' "'Sure, Captain, dear, who'd left me fiddle in the—' Lafarge dropped the bundle of things he was holding under his left arm, seized the old sailor, and rushed him against the bulwarks, as if he meant to fling him into the sea through the bulwarks. Next moment Mr. Button was in the boat. Emmeline was handed to him, pale of face and wide-eyed, and clasping something wrapped in a little shawl. Then Dick, and then Mr. Lestrange was helped over. "'No room for more!' cried Lafarge. "'Your place will be in the longboat, Mrs. Stannard, if we have to leave the ship. Lower away! Lower away!' The boat sank towards the smooth blue sea, kissed it, and was afloat. Now Mr. Button, before joining the ship at Boston, had spent a good while lingering by the quay, having no money wherewith to enjoy himself in a tavern. He had seen something of the lading of the Northumberland, and had heard more from a stevedore. No sooner had he cast off the falls and seized the oars than his knowledge awoke in his mind, living and lurid. He gave a whoop that brought the two sailors leaning over the side. "'Bullies! Aye, aye! Run for your lives! I've just remembered. There's two barrels of blasting powder in the hold!' Then he bent to his oars as no man ever bent before. Lestrange, sitting in the stern-sheets, clasping Emmeline and Dick, saw nothing for a moment after hearing these words. The children, who knew nothing of blasting powder or its effects, though half-frightened by all the bustle and excitement, were still amused and pleased at finding themselves in the little boat so close to the blue pretty sea. Dick put his finger over the side so that it made a ripple in the water—the most delightful experience of childhood. Emmeline, with one hand clasped in her uncle's, watched Mr. Button with a grave sort of half-pleasure. 
he certainly was a sight worth watching. His soul was filled with tragedy and terror. His Celting imagination heard the ship blowing up, saw himself and the little dinghy blown to pieces, nay, saw himself in hell being toasted by devils. But tragedy and terror could find no room for expression on his fortunate or unfortunate face. He puffed and he blew, bulging his cheeks out at the sky as he tugged at the oars, making a hundred and one grimaces, all the outcome of agony of mind, but none expressing it. Behind lay the ship, a picture not without its lighter side. The longboat and the quarter-boat, lowered with a rush and sea-borne by the mercy of Providence, were floating by the side of the Northumberland. From the ship men were casting themselves overboard like water-rats, swimming in the water like ducks, scrambling on board the boats anyhow. From the half-opened main-hatch the black smoke, mixed now with sparks, rose steadily and swiftly and spitefully, as if driven through the half-closed teeth of a dragon. A mile away beyond the Northumberland stood the fog-bank. It looked solid like a vast country that had suddenly and strangely built itself on the sea, a country where no birds sang and no trees grew, a country of white precipitous cliffs, solid to look at as the cliffs of Dover. "'I'm spent,' suddenly gasped the oarsman, resting the oar-handles under the crook of his knees, and bending down as if he was prepared to butt at the passengers in the stern-sheets. Blow up or blow down, I'm spent. Don't ax me, I'm spent." Mr. Lestrange, white as a ghost, but recovered somewhat from his first horror, gave the spent one time to recover himself and turned to look at the ship. She seemed a great distance off, and the boats, well away from her, were making at a furious pace towards the dinghy. Dick was still playing with the water but Emmeline's eyes were entirely occupied with Paddy Button. New things were always of vast interest to her contemplative mind, and these evolutions of her old friend were eminently new. She had seen him swilling the decks, she had seen him dancing a jig, she had seen him going round the main deck on all fours with Dick on his back, but she had never seen him going on like this before. She perceived now that he was exhausted and in trouble about something, and putting her hand in the pocket of her dress she searched for something that she knew was there. She produced a tangerine orange, and leaning forward she touched the spent one's head with it. Mr. Button raised his head, stared vacantly for a second, saw the proffered orange, and at the sight of it the thoughts of the children and their innocence himself and the blasting powder cleared his dazzled wits, and he took to the skulls again. "'Daddy,' said Dick, who'd been looking astern, "'there's clouds near the ship.' In an incredibly short space of time the solid cliffs of fog had broken. The faint wind that had banked it had now pierced it, and was now making pictures and devices of it most wonderful and weird to see. Horsemen of the mist rose on the water, and were dissolved. Billows rolled on the sea, yet were not of the sea. 
blankets and spirals of vapour ascended to high heaven, and all with a terrible languor of movement, vast and lazy and sinister, yet steadfast of purpose as fate or death, the fog advanced, taking the world for its own. Against this grey and indescribably sombre background stood the smouldering ship with the breeze already shivering in her sails, and the smoke from her main-hatch blowing and beckoning as if to the retreating boats. "'Why is the ship smoking like that?' asked Dick. "'And look at those boats coming. When are we going back, Daddy?' "'Uncle,' said Emmeline, putting her hand in his as she gazed towards the ship and beyond it, "'I'm afraid.' "'What frightens you, Emmy?' he asked drawing her to him. "'Shapes,' replied Emmeline, nestling up to his side. "'Oh, glory be to God!' gasped the old sailor, suddenly resting on his oars. "'Will yous look at the fog that's comin'?' "'I think we had better wait here for the boats,' said Mr. Lestrange. "'We are far enough now to be safe, if anything happens.' "'Aye, aye,' replied the oarsman, whose wits had returned. Blow up or blow down, she won't hit us from here." "'Daddy,' said Dick, "'when are we going back? I, I want my tea.' "'We aren't going back, my child,' replied his father. "'The ship's on fire. We are waiting for another ship.' "'Where's the other ship?' asked the child, looking round at the horizon that was clear. "'We can't see it yet,' replied the unhappy man. "'But it will come.' The long-boat and the quarter-boat were slowly approaching. They looked like beetles crawling over the water, and after them, across the glittering surface, came a dullness that took the sparkle from the sea—a dullness that swept and spread like an eclipse shadow. Now the wind struck the dinghy. It was like a wind from fairyland, almost imperceptible, chill, and dimming the sun a wind from Lilliput. As it struck the dinghy the fog took the distant ship. It was a most extraordinary sight, for in less than thirty seconds the ship of wood became a ship of gauze. A tracery flickered and was gone for ever from the sight of man. End of chapter 4